Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I revisit the topic of MEV with guests Chris Hager from the Flashbots team and Alex Stokes from the EF. This is not the first time we're covering MEV on the show. Over a year ago, we did an episode with the Flashbots team looking at MEV. That was much more of a primer and something I recommend listening to before this one if you want to find out just generally what MEV is. I'll add the link to that in the show notes. In this particular episode, we're going to be teasing out more of the nuances around MEV and look at how the field has evolved since that last episode. We explore how the MEV space could look like after the merge, the concept of PBS or proposer-builder separation, what each role in the MEV landscape actually does and will do, as well as what the MEV boost architecture looks like. We touch on future ideas around MEV and democratization of rewards. We talk about the work that Tarun recently released on MEV, how tornado cash sanctions affected the project, and cryptographic solutions that might be able to prevent some kinds of MEV. This was a really nice deep dive, and I think it brings us up to date on this important topic. Now, before we kick off, I just want to let you know about two initiatives happening in our community right now. The first is the ZK Whiteboard Sessions. This is a new series of educational videos that we're releasing weekly, and they're focused on the concepts and terms that we talk about on the ZK front. This is a great place to start learning about zero-knowledge proofs if you don't fully understand what we're talking about in that context. Check it out. This was produced by ZK Hack in collaboration with Polygon. I'll add the link to that in the show notes. And join our Discord. Let us know what you think. I'm getting a lot of really good feedback on it. And I'd love to hear from you if there's some topics or concepts that we are missing that you think we should cover in order to help you better learn what's happening in ZK. The second thing I want to highlight is the ZK Jobs Board. Right now, there's a fresh batch of open roles from ZK-focused projects posted there. So if you're looking for a job or if you just want to understand what teams are looking for, this would be a great place to check it out. Also, if you're hiring, be sure to add your job to the ZK Jobs Board today. So now I want to invite Tanya to share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Polygon. Introducing Polygon ZK EVM. We all know that Ethereum needs to scale, and Polygon believes that zero-knowledge tech is the best way forward. Polygon's vision for ZKEVM is simple. Developers can seamlessly deploy any Ethereum smart contract to a layer 2 and benefit from the scaling power of ZK proofs. It's also permissionless, meaning anyone can use it, and open source. Polygon ZKEVM was built by Polygon, but it's for anyone who wants a cheaper and faster way to use Ethereum without sacrificing security or decentralization. They will be releasing a public testnet soon, which will be an opportunity to test their work and make improvements. If you'd like to learn more about Polygon ZK EVM and stay up to date on the latest, then fill out the form in the show notes. So thank you again, Polygon. Now here is Anna's dive back into MEV with Alex Stokes and Chris Hager. Today we're here with Chris Hager from the Flashbots team and Alex Stokes from the EF. We're going to be diving back into the topic of MEV. I want to say welcome to both of you. Hi, Anna. Great to be here. Yep. Hey, Anna. Great to be here as well. Excited to talk about MEV today. Nice. 
Tarun is joining us today to co-host this episode. So welcome back, Tarun. It's been a few months since you've been on, so I'm happy to have you. Hey, what's up? It's been a, a laconic summer. I feel like the last <laughs> time I was on the show, everything was blowing up in the world and now it's sort of chilled out. Has it? I think in the ZK space, like the last two weeks have been our whirlwind, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's the only thing where there's been any kind of like... Uh, big drama. Actually, no, MEV land has had a lot of drama as we'll talk about today anyway. Yeah. Very cool. So last year, I actually did an episode on MEV with James Prestwich. We interviewed Phil and Alex from the Flashbots team. I actually re-listened to that episode before doing this one. And I was kind of amazed at how little I understood about the concept back then and how I hope, I feel like I definitely have been like following it much closer since then. I feel like generally as an ecosystem, I feel like people understand it better nowadays. And so I'm very excited to do this interview where we're going to dive back in to maybe tease out some more nuances about the MEV space, look forward at what's coming down to the pipeline, and also obviously talk about kind of the latest drama focused very much on like tornado and ZK stuff and privacy and how this impacts things like MEV. But I think before we do that, I'd love to learn about both of you. So Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about what led you to work on this problem? Oh boy. Uh, okay. So I've been working on with, you know, all about Ethereum for quite a while now. Um, and I think my entry into the space was research at this point, you know, several years ago into proof of stake. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening is aware of the merge that's about to happen. So that's all very exciting. You, you know, you, Anna, given your, your experience of like, yeah, like, you know, I, I like had this MEV concept and I feel like I didn't quite understand like all the implications. And then now there's like so yeah. much more and there's just like this, like, you know, this thread you can keep pulling. I feel like that mirrors my experience a lot where like, you know, I heard about MEV, uh, there's all the work the Flashboss team has been doing, you know, for a year or so now. And Either way, uh, well, yeah. So where I first entered into into MEV being relevant and important was for consensus. Uh, I don't know how much we'll get into it today, but essentially, like if you think about it, like when you when you add blocks to the chain, some of them have MEV, and this MEV like changes the incentives around you know extending the chain versus reorging the chain mm -hmm. and things like this. And yeah. Again, I don't know how much we want to get into that, but the point being is that actually there's like very deep, you know, profound implications for security of blockchains when MEV exists. And then you start thinking about this and you realize MEV is everywhere and it always exists. And it becomes, yeah, at least for me, I've just become like obsessed with like first answering the question, what is MEV? And then also understanding like security implications for, for the systems that, that we use. Cool. What time frame was that? When did you join the project? So I've been at the EF for four years now. And again, my entry was, uh, yeah, way, way back when, like I, I just started sort of contributing in open source capacity on uh, early versions of, you know, now we have the merge, let's move to proof of stake. In the early days, there was even an idea to do uh, sort of this like Casper finality gadget on top of the proof of work chain and even manage all the validators within a smart contract. So it was like uh, a very interesting idea and we've, we've come very far in our thinking around how to do this. But yeah, that, that was like sort of my initial intro uh, cool. into things. And yeah, it's just, you know, this is like the most interesting thing I can certainly find. And uh, hopefully, you know, there's like some very good benefit from it. So here I am. Keeps me keeps me engaged. Um, 
What you just said, this is like a little aside, but like, was that finality gadget meant to deal with MEV? I actually never understood it that way. Well, I mean, again, this will probably be my like my party line is that MEV is everywhere and it is always applicable. (laughs) But um, I don't know. That's the thing. Like even back then, no one like we didn't even really have this term MEV. Right. Like there were, you know, I think people understood that you could, for example, have like Dex arbitrage. And that could like have implications for like how people were like building blocks and how the chain is formed and stuff like this. But it definitely wasn't thought about as this like almost abstraction that like we have. Mm-hmm. Whereas very much, at least for me, it's like the way I think about it is like you put blocks on the chain and like the blocks have like MEV sort of hanging off of them. And like this is like very important again for security because it changes the incentives like very drastically. Got it. All right, Chris, let's find out about you. What led you to work on this project? I started at Flashbot about a year ago, 13 months. I was previously in, in active in blockchain for a number of years with decentralized exchanges, uh, doing open source tooling for uh, some Ethereum projects for the Neo blockchain and others. Then I was doing a extended parental leave. And after that, like right in the middle of my parental leave, there was this whole development of the MEV uh, papers and flashbots uh, bringing up solutions to uh, the gas wars and other problems. And I was looking for new interesting things to work on mm-hmm. and started digging into Ethereum reorgs and writing some reorg monitor software that keeps track of ongoing and reorgs in, in, in deep detail. And so our, the paths of my projects and flashbots aligned and we started collaborating more and then I started full-time on Flashbots then. Cool. First I was working on, on Flashbots Protect and more of the user-facing MEV protection products and then at some point we just needed manpower on uh, MathBoost and our PBS uh, streams, and I was happy to start there and really got yeah very deep into it and very excited about it. And it was just at the right time when all the MEV Boost specifications were co-developed with uh, the Ethereum Foundation and the consensus client teams. And this was a very intense half a year so far for me, Mm. uh, diving deep into MEV Boost and all the implications and other projects around. Cool. You've both just mentioned MEV Boost. What is that versus what was being built before? Like what, what's different about MEV Boost? Or is it just the formalization and the kind of the naming of what was being built before? So before, or in the current Ethereum 1 setup, it's uh, Flashbots is sending bundles to miners and other mm-hmm. parties sending bundles to miners and the miners assemble the blocks. In Ethereum 2, it's different in the sense that the proposers, the validators, they run the consensus client software and they fall back to a local execution layer software like GAF or Nethermind or other to produce the blocks. And they can reach out to MathBoost relays to provide blocks for them, but they do not know the contents of the block. So the transactions, they are removed and the proposers have the choice of signing this block for a certain value that the relay is claiming this block provides. And after the signature, the proposer receives the block content for proposal. MathBoost here is just a small P 
piece of open source infrastructure that runs on the proposal server that is a relay multiplexer. So MathBoost mm -hmm. is capable of connecting to many relays and asking many relays for possible blocks and providing the best to the proposer. Okay, cool. But in what you just described, is this being built primarily for the post-merge or is this something that's already been used today? It's exclusively for Ethereum 2. Okay. So it's only being used currently on like the testnet mode and like, okay, so it's not, it's not live yet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, another way of uh, putting it is it allows connecting to an external builder network to receive blocks from other parties, outside parties, and the, the proposers, the validators, not being trusted. So that's why I designed the blocks blinded without the transactions. So they do not steal the transactions, basically the MEV from the transactions from searchers. Okay. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I think Chris gave you a nice overview of like MevBoost and what the software is today. And maybe this will be like a helpful arc for just this episode generally, because I would like to, you know, provide some more context that this is like an implementation of this thing called PBS, Proposer Builder Separation. So, uh, you know, this technique is, I mean, again, it's what Chris said, right? It's there's this like external builder network and proposers, validators in this merged Ethereum ecosystem, they, you know, are the ones tasked with making the blocks, getting the blocks out to the network, all of this. And all this talk about PBS that we hear is just recognizing the fact that like MEV is a thing, kind of what I said a second ago, like there will always be MEV, MEV is like a reality we must deal with. And so because of that, we say, okay, are there things we can do to manage or mitigate some of the externalities of MEV? And there certainly are um, at all layers of the stack, honestly, like from people using wallets to, you know, these more like infrastructure providers, Chris mentioned the relays to all the way to the validators doing their job. And what we would like to do is say, okay, uh, because we, you know, can likely have all these mitigations and, and ways to like help the situation generally, uh, we can then ask, okay, can we take some of those into the protocol? And that's like where I think we'd all like to go some years down the road uh, towards an enshrined PBS solution. Um, mm. And today, like this is part of the work Flashbots is doing is saying, okay, uh, we're not going to put this into the protocol anytime soon. And so instead, let's do essentially off-chain solutions that gives us room for experimentation. And yeah, just time to like gather more data and see how these systems behave. And then that's, you know, I think ultimately what we're all trying to build towards. Cool. One thing I think that might actually be helpful for listeners who've probably, who haven't heard about PBS before is maybe walking through the sort of, you know, verbally the sequence diagram of like how say like block producers aggregate transactions, then relay them to a proposer, then the proposer picks kind of the highest bid. Because I think that would kind of make it a little easy to see why you need sort of this infrastructure for managing many builders in the future. I guess I just mean like the person who maybe for the first time is hearing about this might not even know that right. what the design space looks like, right? And sure. I, I think part of that comes from like what the sort of queries that are made are, right? There's like the users submitting a transaction to block builders. There's a block builder submitting a block via different relayers. Like maybe like uh, kind of going through what the things are that make this kind right. of a complicated problem might yeah. be a good thing for our listeners. Right. So we have thrown all these terms around so far, right? There's like proposers, validators, relayers, builders. There's the users who are using the system. There's, there's like all these actors and searchers. 
Right. Searchers. Exactly. So there, there's all these, these actors in what's becoming a very sophisticated ecosystem. And maybe it's helpful then just to like walk through uh, sort of this like pipeline. There's uh, some of the Flashbots team members have been working on this like MEV supply chain diagram, which I think is really, it's a really helpful framing for like understanding the different actors and kind of how these pieces fit together. So on the one end, you have users who are, you know, us using the chain. Let's say we want to like make some, you know, Dex trade. So we go do this, you know, in a pre-Flashbots world, let's say, like when we don't have this infrastructure for this thing that kind of looks like this PBS, this proposer builder separation, I just broadcast my transaction to the whole world, right? The public mempool. And this is, well, it's many things. Uh, it's very exciting, at least, because now there are specialized actors, like Chris mentioned, called searchers. And searchers are these, like, again, very specialized, sophisticated players in the world. And all they want to do is, like, try to find MEV. Um, they do this because, like, they can actually, you know, collect the MEV themselves. So it's essentially some reward for their job, their work. And uh, they do this. So with, like, my DEX example, uh, there could essentially be like this arbitrage that the, the searcher is going to do. Um, one example is like if I have my trade and I take like say a Uniswap pool at a balance, the searcher can come and backrun me and basically restore the balance of the pair. Uh, this is like the MEV they could take. Is this searcher a bot that's built by a unique, like an individual, or is this like a tool set that's provided by the Flashbots libraries? Right. Uh, I think a mix of both. Chris can probably say more. Oh. Yeah, but it's mostly individuals or small companies that run bots that submit these transactions to okay. the Flashbots infrastructure, which routes it to the builders. Okay, cool. Um, I do want to throw back to another episode, in case anyone's curious about this kind of stuff, which is I did this episode with the Dialectic folks, Project Blanc, Prop Shop, and they kind of explained what it was to be the bot maker. Um, I don't know if they're making this kind of bot, but just that gave me a lot of context into like what the action of a lot of this stuff actually looks like. Anyway, sorry, yeah. Alex, continue. Well, right, exactly. So yeah, there are teams, you know, like you talk to Dean and his team, and this is exactly, you know, some of the work they do is they are one of these like searcher teams, searcher funds, like however you want to think about it. But essentially, again, yeah, they, they write software and the software looks at the public mempool. So that's sort of where I was in the arc is we now have a transaction in the mempool. And, you know, these searchers, it could be individuals, but usually they're teams who have these bots, this automated software that watches the mempool. And it's like, okay, you know, I have the current Ethereum state and given all the transactions I see right now, uh, maybe one of them, you know, emits some MEV. And then what I want to do then is make my own transaction that captures this MEV, uh, perhaps for myself. Um, again, the design space of what happens to the MEV is quite big, but uh, that's a much future conversation. Either way, uh, the searcher then would try to collect this MEV. And this is now like where Flashbots entered the scene is like what happens is when we have the situation, as I just described, you have many people competing for this MEV, right? So you now have all these searcher teams all over the world. It becomes highly competitive. And before Flashbots, the way that you would do this is you would essentially need to outbid everyone in the public mempool. And mm -hmm. with Ethereum today, what that means is you end up with, uh, you know, I think believe Christmas mentioned gas wars. And what that looks like is, you know, I declare I'll pay X to get my MEV extracting transaction on chain. 
someone else sees that and they turn around and make their own transaction because they want the MEV. So then they say, well, I need to outbid you to get on chain. So they'll bid a little bit more, right? And then now I can turn around and do the same thing. And then the other person does the same thing, right? And then now you have these like wars where literally what happens is, you know, if the, if the size of the MEV opportunity is say like, you know, this much ETH, someone will bid, you know, in the limit, they bid, you know, that much ETH minus just a little bit uh, because otherwise they wouldn't get anything. And this is again, one of these externalities that we've been talking about, because now, you know, let's say I separately want to like go vote on some like DAO proposal. Uh, the gas is suddenly like through the roof for the whole mempool rate. And, and that's bad. So Flashbots came onto the scene and said, Hey, uh, we can start to build things that look like this PBS infrastructure we'll keep talking about today. And a lot of what that did was say, okay, for searchers who want to do this type of thing, there's now this like essentially off chain auction that provides them access to block space almost separate from like this public mempool. And by doing that, you sort of silo, you like firewall off this, like the gas games that searchers can play. And yeah, there's there's a ton more benefits that uh, I'm sure Chris could get into, but essentially by doing so, you hope to reduce, you know, the situation where the, the, the gas is suddenly spiking for users who otherwise, you know, might not care about this like searcher bit anymore. They can just use the chain as they, they would otherwise. Mm. Um, and this, this idea of like firewalling this activity off is uh, helpful because it's like, this is sort of like the design primitive of PBS. Like this is what we aim to do is like do this sort of thing. Like if there are these, these externalities that the protocol sort of generates, then what we hope to do is is push them to a place where we can control them or at least like reduce their reduce the downsides. Just one question, is the searcher the proposer as well? Or is it like that split that you're talking about between proposer builder? Like where does the searcher come in? Right. So you have searchers and then the next step. So now we have searchers and searchers have found these opportunities. There's this word bundle we'll probably keep using, Chris mentioned, where essentially the idea is to extract the MEV this way, you need to like have a certain sequence of transactions. And so with Ethereum, you basically can submit one transaction. That's like the primitive that you have with the protocol. So if you need, you know, to have a sequence of things, then you need to have quote a bundle, which is just many transactions in a particular order. So anyway, searchers do this. They then make these bundles. The bundles go to these actors called builders and the distinction here, like may blur over time, but essentially they're distinct jobs. The thinking is that, you know, searching is so competitive that these are very specialized sort of activities. So like there'll be, you know, searchers that specialize in just arbitrage or just liquidation or, well, then there's like the long tail of all sorts of things. But you can imagine that like, you know, you, you get these, these teams of people that are like very focused on one very type of thing. They're not going to also be very good at say building full blocks, which is what the builders in this MEV boost or this PBS world do. So now you have builders. Builders are making full blocks. Maybe they're taking like, you know, a collection of bundles they get from like different searchers. They're filling the rest of the block with say just regular transactions from the public mempool, which could be whatever. They don't necessarily need to be MEV transactions, just whatever's out there. They've now built a full block. Now we get to the namesake of proposer builder separation, which is now the builder has built a block and they have to get this to the proposer, right? So the oh. there are especially like you have to be a special sort of actor on within the protocol to actually propose or like you know include a block in the chain and these are the validators the way ethereum is structured is every so often there's a slot which is just a chunk of time there's one validator per slot that is the proposer they and only they can seal the block they can sign it with you know in cryptographic signature way um 
in a special way, only they know how can they steal the block and then make it, uh, you know, available for inclusion into the chain. And then once it does that, then you have like some percentage of validators that have to approve it. You're not wrong. So basically the way to think about it is that there's one validator every slot. I use this, this word slot. So there's one validator every slot who can propose a block. And then essentially, you know, we can get into the details if you want. I don't think they're super relevant. The way to think about it is that we then went literally every other validator to like basically a test or like, you know, they, they should produce some proof that they also think this block should be in the chain. Okay. Um, and you've, you've talked to other quote ETH2 people. Uh, we've moved away from this terminology, by the way. Yeah, but sorry, if you sorry. talk to other, <laughs> no, it's fine. It just, I have to insert the plug. Uh, okay. <laughs> but if you, if you talk to the consensus people, this is, uh, you know, this is what we say is that, you know, you have validators attesting to the chain yeah. and Right. Like, again, for other technical reasons that are important, it's like sort of blocked, you know, sort of chunked up into groups of validators called committees. But point is, is that, yes, you produce a block and then for it to be given sort of weight in in the chain as being canonical over another one, you then have everyone else attest to the block. Cool. And if you imagine this sort of like, mm, I don't know, maybe like a zipper or like, uh, you know, Maybe a better better analogy is like having something kind of like freeze. Like if you imagine there's like an ice cube with like a puddle and then it like freezes towards like you have this this process of finality that runs along the chain mm-hmm. and we're looking at the details of it in some some detail right now. Nice. I do need to do an episode on post-merge ETH soon because I can tell mm-hmm. I'm rusty on this. I'm very much in like the Cosmos Tendermint model still. So I'm always thinking like two thirds of the existence anyway. But I, with so many validators, I understand it's possibly being done differently. There's different trade-offs we've made in the design space. And yes, I'm sure you could have a whole episode just on that okay. alone. Sounds good. And I want to say this is a brilliant overview of the whole PPS uh, implementation here and, and MFBoost is kind of a stopgap solution towards full PPS that takes a few years probably until it's actually ready and MFBoost, the MFBoost approach is something we can have right now and we just uh, can deliver that at the merge. One missing piece here is the relay that we haven't talked about. So a builder, the block builder can also be a relay in itself. Being a relay means providing the Builder API. There's an Ethereum Foundation repository called Builder Specs that defines a certain API on how the proposer reaches out to a block builder or a relay to receive, to request a block and then submit the signed block and then receive the payload. And a relay is nothing else, it's only implementing this API and it can be only for one included block builder or it can be a relay that accepts blocks from many block builders and only provides the best block to the proposer or maybe a block based on certain preferences. And MathBoost on top of that is a way to connect to many of these relays as one proposer. So the proposer mm. needs to configure specific relays that it trusts to receive the blocks from because there is certain trust needed towards the relays because they can, for instance, withhold the payloads, which leads the proposer to missing the block proposal. So there is a certain amount of trust needed from the proposer to the relay. Does the MEV boost actually make something faster, more accurate, cheaper? I'm just curious, like what's the actual tangible impact? 
it's just a really multiplexer, really. Like okay. the consensus client, you can hook up any consensus client to any single relay. Not all of them do the signature verifications, but you can hook them up to a single builder. And MathBoost is just a piece of software that allows the proposer to use many relays. I guess I had a question in terms of like registration, like DNS style. Like how does a relay register? And is there some sort of like notion of a registry? I, I guess I'm thinking of this from the perspective of like, you know, when I have this sort of P2P network, like say like a Kademlia type of thing, right? You still have to sort of effectively do some peer discovery. Is there like a, a specialized peer discovery protocol here for relayers to register? Um, well, there was a strong argument against these registries because the proposers should know exactly which relays they want to trust and to configure. So they are configured manually. So the proposer in its beacon client software, beacon node software, configures a relay by a domain and a public key of the relay and ensures that all the bits delivered by this relay are signed with the proper key. So right now, a proposer needs to trust and, and manually configure each relay. Do you, do you envision that changing? If there suddenly you end up in a world where there's fewer proposers, but like a larger set of block builders? Because like you could imagine that proposers might actually miss out on quite a bit of revenue if they actually are unable to find all the block builders. Um, I'm, I'm giving this as more of a hypothetical, but I'm just, you know, it is something that even at like every single layer one faces this challenge of like, how do you do peer discovery amongst nodes? And mm. I, I was just curious if you think at some point that that will be important. So builders are very incentivized to make themselves known, right? Like if builders cannot reach proposers, then they can't do anything. But yeah, I mean, I, to your point, Tarun, like I, I would hope that we move more in this direction where... Well, there's a number of things we can hope to achieve, but yes, like Chris was saying today, like this is a very sort of static manual process. Uh, everyone involved would love to see, you know, a very sort of open permissionless ecosystem for each of these different roles I just described. And then you can imagine like as we build that out, what that looks like is, yeah, there is some sort of peer-to-peer -peer discovery protocol. Um, you know, we're a big fan of like using gossip in different places. And then you can imagine, right, like I want to come online as a relay or a builder and then I'm like gossiping some registration and, you know, hopefully that starts to move towards this world. That's not OK. Go to Flashbots, you know, you know, relays.flashbots.net and figure out where the relays are and, and this sort of thing. Um, but again, it's like to my understanding, like Flashbots is saying, okay, you know, there's this very important thing we need to do, which is like have some PBS solution and MevBoost is that thing. And so the question is like, how can we do that, you know, in the next month? <laughs> um, they've been working on it, you know, for much longer than that. But at this point, right, the question is like, what can we do? And, you know, I think they've made the right decisions to this point and saying, okay, let's build it this way or that way with the idea of being to like have something ready. And then you know, everyone I know is is very much, you know, ready for the, the next step, which is mm. starting to decentralize more and more of these pieces. Yeah. Just a note here that Ethereum health and chain liveness is our top priority. And it's important for us to align the current steps towards that, because mm. there is some security implications of adding additional relays or just letting relays include themselves to the proposers, because there is certain verification capabilities that need to be developed for that to be totally safe. So that's another topic that we maybe touch on later. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I guess the one question 
I've maybe given that you mentioned liveness here is suppose I'm uh, an ETH validator and I initially had MEV boost turned off because I took the OFAC list too seriously or something. And then I turn it on later. Um, should I expect extra latency or bandwidth requirements for me that are like quite dramatic relative to running a stock validator? I'm just like, how much beefier do I need my setup to be for running running it or versus not? Uh, not at all. Like the bandwidth is uh, two requests to the relay, one to get the header and one to submit the signed block and receive the full payload. And the, the size is at most a few hundred kilobytes once per proposal. And the delay, you can configure your maximum allowed relay delay in MathBoost, but the flashbots really responds within milliseconds. And I think even a few seconds is still on the safe side. I wanted to ask, like, who's running the MEV boost? Is that the validator? It's the proposer who's actually using this tool? Yes, this is just a small slice of software that runs next to the beacon node. Okay. To the consensus layer client. And then I have another question is like, would the validator actually be running different parts of the stack? Like, would they also be running a builder role? Would they be doing a relayer? Like, I'm just trying to figure out, like, would it make any sense for them to actually run more than just like their validator plus MEV boost? It's conceivable that large staking pools would be interested in running their own relays um, just for more control, maybe more data visibility and other things. Um, but for solo stakers, it's not not a realistic option because it includes a lot of infrastructure and also trust from the block builders and the searchers because they trust the builder and the relay with the plain text transactions that contain the MEV extraction and that they want to profit of themselves. It will be hard for small actors to um, basically build profitable blocks that are comparable to the bigger relays. And kind of like one more thing on what you said, Alex, like on merge day, like is this all in place, like those different roles being distinct in the way you've described them, or is that still sort of theoretical? No, I mean, I would say they're in place. So, okay. I mean, we definitely have validators and we have, you know, there'll be proposers then. And then the question is, right, like, will there be builders? You, Who are the builders? I guess. Right. Well, OK, so this is a good question. I mean, you know, the I think it is early days for this MEV boost ecosystem. And uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, TBD as to exactly how it evolves. And that's part of the fun. <laughs> there are a number of organizations that have committed to be in relays. I think they might all build blocks as well. And, you know, again, kind of like I was alluding to a second ago, I think everyone involved envisions this like more decentralized network eventually where you can have permissionless building, right? So you could have just, you know, specialized builder actors that are here. And then that's where they do need the relays to connect to the proposers. Mm. And yeah, maybe just taking a step back, you know, like the reason we go to all this trouble in the first place is to support these like smaller validator actors. like. You can imagine just like foregoing this entire network and just having like, you know, one huge builder organization directly connected to one huge, you know, staking pool or some validator organization. Uh, and they just do this. And w this may happen. Uh, we'll, we'll see, you know, how things shape up. Um, but we definitely have this like very core value in Ethereum that like, you know, validation, for example, should be within reach of like most users, right? At least we should like strive towards this ideal because it helps decentralization. So we do this 
And then you, you know, given the previous claim, right, that like, you know, there are these returns to scale with MEV, MEV extraction and all of this. And then consequently, larger pools are like best positioned to do this. Well, um, we want to ask, OK, can we can we help these smaller stakers that we want to sort of support in this way? And this is why I think we have the decisions made for MevBoost and like PBS broadly are for exactly this is like we want anyone to be able to have these MEV opportunities, uh, access to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of the scale of their like staking operations. Yeah. We talked about this on the episode with Dean, and I think we talked about it on the previous episode, which is like this idea of accelerationism. Like here you're saying, this is going to happen anyway. Let's make sure it's not just the big players who have access to this thing. Does this still follow that philosophy, would you say? Is that kind of what you're what you're angling for? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, okay. accelerationism is a is a very interesting word, but yeah. uh, you know, I think there's certain things where it's not clear what the best options are. Like here's the thing. Like if we perfectly understood how to like solve MEV at the core protocol layer, like we would just like have a protocol hard fork that does this. Like we would just mm. sort of ship and shrine PBS. There are a number of questions that I don't think we have answers to, in part because I think we just need like more experience, more data of just like observing the landscape. It would be silly to, you know, pick one particular version of this design. And then what happens, you know, is no one uses it or like, you know, there's some like backdoor loophole that like sort of harms the integrity of like of what we're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, I, I think we'll see. And in the meantime, yeah, it's it's just sort of saying, yeah, what's the best we can do before we can answer those questions? And, and MevBoost is like a great step in that direction. Hmm. Um, I want to ask you about like sort of general opportunities once there is this move to proof of stake when it comes to MEV. I mean, I think I've already sort of alluded to some of them where it's like validators running extra roles. You've alluded to it basically like new ways that they could improve what they're doing, maybe even like access some of these funds. But I feel like I've heard and I'm, I don't know if this is actually something you're working on, but this idea that like if you look at MEV in a POS system, if you start to incorporate some of this or enshrine it or like put it into protocol, like could you actually democratize some of the MEV or like give it out more to validators, like in a more even way, rather than having these sort of like unique prop shops who can invest all that time to like do a lot of this work that's gathering a lot of it. Is that actually something you're thinking about? Is that possible? I've literally just like heard it. I don't actually know sure. <laughs> if it's yeah. doable. Anything is possible. Okay. Um, okay. You're touching on like a very big topic. Um, I think the way that like the researchers in the space would refer to it as is MEV smoothing. So the okay. idea is, right, there is MEV, like MEV exists. And now the question is like, what can we do? And uh, one thing we've kind of touched on is the fact that it it provides these sort of, you know, economies of scale where if you're good at extracting MEV, that's like some extra revenue you can use to improve your staking operation. You then have these like large pools because obviously this compounds and then that harms decentralization. So uh, we want to ask, OK, as you know, crypto economic researchers, can we, again, mitigate that situation, try to make sure it doesn't get there? What can we do? Um, and an obvious sort of, you know, intuition is what you said, Anna, is just, okay, if there is this MEV and like people can take it for themselves, like, is there a way we can almost like sort of, you know, smear it across everyone else, the whole validator set, uh, so that you then don't have this, like, at least as sharp of a return to scale on your efforts. And yeah, and this is kind of what I mean when I say there's a bunch of like open, I think, research questions around like how you'd actually want to do PBS in, in the protocol. Um, 
But yeah, like at a high level, the idea is you could imagine that, you know, if there's so much maybe in a block, rather than that go directly to the builder or the proposer, you know, there'll be some split between them. But rather than it all go to like just these singular actors, you can, again, put it in the sort of protocol escrow or something. Mm. Um, this is very much like if, if people are familiar with 1559, the, you know, the transaction mechanics on Ethereum today, there's like this base fee that's burned. And a way to think about that is like the protocol is taking the base fee and, you know, it turns around then and like burns it, but that's a you know, choice. There can be other choices. And at least, you know, broadly speaking. And so this is a similar thing where with MEV smoothing, you would have this ability to say, okay, rather than pay out the MEV directly, the protocol takes it and then does something with it. And, you know, there's a whole design space around what that something is. Uh, but yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I think people would like to see it come to the network at, at some point because, yeah, it, it does seem to reduce, uh, for example, we've talked about reorgs. And so like, you can imagine that if you can reduce the like the burstiness of MEV, because the way to think about it is that like MEV is not smooth. This is why we want to smooth it out. Like, you know, it could take until, for example, an Oracle update on chain for there to suddenly be this huge liquidation opportunity. And that could only happen, you know, every, once every say hundred blocks. And what that means is that if you're extracting MEV, then like that on that hundred block, you care very much about getting your, your transactions on chain, right? And so instead we could imagine smoothing this out um, and making the whole process more democratic in that sense. And by doing so, you reduce, you know, the incentives to, to for example, try and reorg this liquidation mm -hmm. out, things like this. I believe Tarun actually just had a paper on this. I don't know if you want to plug that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, thanks. Um, I guess in general, it's very hard to design these things without this concept of like off-chain agreements of like, why wouldn't people collude off-chain to to avoid kind of the tax in some sense, because you could view this redistribution as, you know, maybe if there's someone who's a searcher and also a proposer, they may view that uh, as an individual as, as a form of a tax. But assuming you can find a way of doing it, and so that will require cryptographic solutions as well as economic solutions. It's not like a single, it's not like obvious exactly what the best way of doing it is. Assuming you have that, uh, I, this paper just shows sort of this thing that like you can avoid these really bad equilibria where people just unstake all of their assets and go earn yield elsewhere. Mm. Um, but also you can have a lower inflation rate. And so you can you can actually have lower block rewards if you redistribute MEV. And so ah. assuming there's like a sufficient quantity um, and then, you know, there's a way of quantifying that. But that part was actually, I think, the more surprising thing is that, hey, maybe this is an alternative to having a super, super inflationary schedule to keep people staking. And so wow. I think that that's part of the design space that I think will probably be explored. But first, we need to actually have like cryptographic solutions that, you know, will make it so that it's expensive enough for you to kind of cheat in these systems. Interesting. Which it's not right now, at least. Is this something we want is a lower inflationary schedule? Like, is that something that like one should aim for as a protocol designer? Have you ever seen the ultrasound money <laughs> meme? I feel like that's the entire thing is about doing that. There's demand out there. Someone okay. would want yeah. this. Okay, okay, okay. But even like you get like, I don't know, like Tarun's point is I think good that like you can imagine MEV as this like subsidy. And I think yeah. this is like my own meme I want to start spreading is that like we should use MEV for public goods. And this is exactly what we mean is that like, 
if we can find a way to like, you know, have the perfect arrangement of signatures and hash functions and all these things, like if we if we can use the tools we have available, then like it's possible we can actually use MEV for like very good things by having the protocol take it and then using it in like a positive way. You still need to motivate people to run it, though. So I, I do think there needs to potentially be incentive at the level of the validator. And there and there can be. And then the question is like, OK, if there's like this much MEV, then like half of it maybe goes to the protocol. Half, I mean, yeah. all of these arguments are for 1559 and like this, this works great. Right. So the thing to keep in mind on this arc is that like many people who use these systems are interested in the long term game. They're not just here to like sort of have this like one block profit and then completely exit. And I think a lot of these things are making a lot more sense when you can say, hey, Maybe, you know, block by block, I'm not taking as much revenue. However, uh, you know, the system overall is much healthier, much more secure. And so it can keep going for longer. Cool. One last thing I think is in general, right, in almost all forms of this industry, we've always generally seen pools of capital converge to the things that lower their variance and payoff per time, like mining pools or staking derivatives. And so... It's. It would be kind of surprising if MEV is the only thing where people are not willing to trade off some instant reward for lower variance and rewards over the long term. And so if there is a mechanism for it, I do think there's demand for mm. people doing that. Um, this is actually a question. So I chatted with James before this interview and asked if he had any follow-up questions. And he asked like, if the MEV fees actually sidestep 1559 currently. And so I wonder, like, because what you've just described is like this of actually sharing the profits, that's not going to happen at time of merge, I'm assuming. So in the meantime, are the fees, the MEV fees actually like undoing what 1559 tried to do? Right. I would say no. But it's also not clear, and this is part of the trickiness to PBS generally, is that you can always sort of have these off-chain agreements. Uh, I think Tarun just just mentioned this, right? And the idea is that basically, you know, you're right. Like maybe this does feel like a tax. Like why why would I use your silly protocol? Like you know, here's this liquidation. We could have software that doesn't even touch you know the core protocol that facilitates all of this automatically. Like you could do all of this. And then the question is like, yeah, why would you use this? Um, for 1559 in particular, like it's mandated by the protocol that you must pay the base fee. Like the only way to get the MEV is to like use block space. And the only way to get block space is to like pay the base fee. Like that that's in part, you know, why there's this decision to burn the base fee because like it's there, it is essentially just sort of like siphoned out of supply. And like, it, it's this very strong like forcing function that, you know, it's hard to like move around. So yeah, like to first order, I would not say that like MEV sidesteps this in any way. And again, this is where a lot of the complexities and subtleties around like this sort of the more open research questions of PBS is like, we want the same mechanism here where it's like, there shouldn't be a way to sidestep the thing we do. Um, and if there is, it should be very expensive or just like not worth someone's time. Hmm. I want to move to the topic sort of of like Ethereum versus other places. I guess the question here really is like, do you only work on Ethereum do you work on, I'm assuming, all EVM compatible chains? Are you only looking at the Ethereum main chain as your focus point? Or like, are you paying attention to the rollups, to the sort of, yeah, bridged EVM compatible chains? Curious what your thoughts are there. I know that Flashbots in general is paying a lot of attention on other chains, on L2s, on rollups, and so on. Okay. In particular, our research part of our organization 
we do also have a lot of uh, collaborations with other projects happening on, on the research side. Product-wise, we are Flashbots is mostly focused on Ethereum for now. Okay, but could one use it on any EVM-compatible network? Yes, I mean, not, not even only EVM-compatible. Like, the MEV boost system is potentially transferable to uh, other setups as well. Okay, but it would, I guess it would have to follow the model that, like the relayer, like the builder, you'd have to have some of that infrastructure, right, for it to work? Yes, okay. right. But that's, that's independent of the EVM. I see. Yeah, another way of thinking about it is like right now all this stuff is done off-chain anyway. And, you know, like if you think about the current state of Flashbots, it's just like completely an off-chain service, right? That mm. does, And this is just kind of making a more transparent version of that because none of these things are enshrined in consensus and you can't mm. really, unless you, you know, go to the complexity of trying to like really slow down the chain. Um, I have a little follow-up to this, which is like, so when I did the last episode, what I understood, what actual technology was coming out is like, you'd be running like a geth node and you'd get almost like a patch. At least that's what Alex at the time was describing this as. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, do you still describe it that way? Would you still describe it as like, it's a patch on existing client infrastructure? No. Not anymore. It, okay. This changes okay, okay. from Ethereum 1 to Ethereum 2. In Ethereum 1, it was a patch to GEF yeah. that's called MathGEF that provides another API to receive bundles and to merge them into the blocks. In ETH 2, it's a whole kind of a sidecar system where MathBoost runs on the side of the proposer and the beacon node calls into MathBoost and uses this whole off-chain builder network to request blocks. So it's more of a, like an add-on, sidecar add-on approach, I would say. Got it. I guess the, the follow-up to that is what percentage of the current network is actually using what you do have? So this is before proof of stake like enters the fray, but like, do you know what percentage of the network is using it? Because as I understood it, like the miners had to run this for it to kind of be useful. Yes. And so, yeah, where, where are you at? So you mean now in Ethereum 1? Yes. Like 70% not or quite something? Sure. Yeah, I think in the ballpark of okay. 70%. Yeah, it's like 70 to 85% in that range. Um, they did have one sort of vampire attack that sort of uh, was unsuccessful since the last episode. I can't remember the name of that thing that did that. That like They basically forked the MEV Geth and added a token, and then it, oh. you know, un unsurprisingly, <laughs> like, Eden, there we go, right, right, right. Attracted hash power for like a month and then had this like big collapse. Okay. So that's 70 to 85% for this to function in the proof of stake world. Does it also have to have that kind of like network share for it to work? And do you kind of expect that to inevitably happen with what you just described, this sort of sidecar action, the fact that like the validators need to be sent, but like doing something in addition to just running the node software or the validator software? Well, it's a good question. My feeling is that staking pools will gravitate towards uh, extracting MEV as okay. a form of higher rewards to their users as well. I'm not sure how big the relay diversity will be. So for sure, not all the proposals will connect to the Flashbots relays and proposals can connect to many relays at once or to a certain subset of those. So if you're talking about the number of proposals that will connect to any relay or tap into any external builder network, my personal feeling is that it will be the majority but uh, it's very yeah. vague. 
Okay. <laughs> I, I really don't know. <laughs> Something to check back in on. <laughs> right. I think we'll see, you know, we'll know a lot more even in a month or two. And the theoretical argument is that people want MEV. And, you know, with proof of stake Ethereum, this is definitely like the most straightforward way right now. Uh, putting aside any sort of bespoke relationships you would have as like a large staking pool or some very specialized searcher or something like this. Got it. I know you just mentioned that you're doing research into roll-up stuff, but as I understand, like right now, there is no real MEV to be had on roll-ups as they are because sequencers kind of do that. Would you agree with that? Do you feel like already today on the roll-up front, there's actually places where people can start building things or does there need to be some sort of decentralization of the sequencer community before that happens? I do not think that just having sequencers mitigates MEV like there's still MEV around. For sure. In fact, a lot of the sequencer models have a separate relay function. There might be a way in which you could have a single sequencer use a MEV boost style network to do the relay to the main chain or a multi-relay. So like, let's suppose that there's two base chains that are both storing data for the same rollup. Not, not saying that this exists right now, but you could imagine a world where like, hey, like a rollup is like, we want redundancy or we want to like split our, you know, main data between two chains because we're willing to take that security trade-off. You could imagine there is a relayer network for doing that. Um, the question is like, does it need to be an incentivized relayer network or not? Uh, which that part gets a little more complicated for layer twos versus MEV. Hmm. In the MEV case, there's just like clear f- revenue that, can flow through to all the participants. Whereas in the layer two case, there's a lot more incentive to censor. It's potentially a, a much higher set of valuable transactions before they go put in. Whereas in the MEV case, you don't have that much time to reason about it also. You're sort of like computationally bounded in terms of like production time. But sorry, these are just like kind of off the cuff guesses of this. But I, I do think <laughs> like people will use these like relayer network type of things once they're like really hardened for other use cases other than MEV. Like. Interesting. And just a side note here, the relay itself, at least the honest relay, is not a profitable endeavor, really. It's more of a public good. So for instance, the Flashbots relay itself, it does not extract any value or provide any profit to those who run it. It's really the block builders sharing their profit with the proposers, where the proposals will receive the majority of the value of the MEV, but the relay is mostly just neutral infrastructure. And I guess this is why you're not sure how many would be running, because there needs to be, like, there's no incentive, so it will be altruistic. It's low incentive and it's high effort. It's like a complicated piece of software. It needs to do block simulations to verify the submissions from the block builders to mm-hmm. make sure only proper blocks with the correct payments make it to the proposer. Because the proposer kind of blindly trusts what the relay is telling the value is. And an honest relay needs to work very hard to make sure that everything is in order with the blocks it proposes cool. to the proposer. So I know that we've mentioned a few times this like cryptographic solution. And I want to do a quick throwback to an episode Tarun and I did with the crew from Osmosis. There they had made a proposal for using something like threshold decryption which is a cryptographic solution to hide the order in the mempool, thus like removing some sort of MEV. Um, is there a part of your team? Or is this something you're looking at or working on? Is this something that you think, yeah, is relevant to this or is a potential solution? 
It's certainly an area of collaboration and research. Okay. I think it's not squarely inside the Flashbots team to figure that out. It's more of a broader collaborative effort to think through possible solutions of using threshold cryptography to uh, solve some of the problems. Uh, and I personally am not an expert in that, but even then it, there is still certain open questions. There is some, still somebody who sees the transactions first and can mm -hmm. act on that information. There is still the block after and the person who has the first right to submit the next transactions. So not all problems can be solved, I think. But I'm sure Alex has more insight into the ongoing research on, on using threshold encryption. Maybe some, I don't know. I'm not sure I think it's as great a mitigation, at least some people might claim. Definitely, I think it's like Chris said, there's this like, you know, broad collaborative effort across many different teams and organizations in the space broadly uh, to figure out how we can use cryptography to, you know, mitigate different externalities of MEV. Uh, you know, a lot of the PBS stuff I've kind of been gesturing at, you know, would have these economic incentives reinforced by cryptographic instructions to like, you know, bias the games we want versus like some other games. And either way, with threshold encryption in particular, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm personally not convinced because it's, it's like Chris was saying, like what happens is if you have this construction in your in your MEV system, then all it really does is push the MEV into like the boundaries of like mm -hmm. the, the encryption process. And this is like generally like this is why MEV is like such an interesting and also like pervasive concept is like you can think of ways to like um, squash okay. it out over here, but it's going to pop up over there. Yes. So like, exactly. <laughs> like if you want to be academic about it, we can say there's this like law of conservation of MEV, right? That like MEV is always yeah. there and you can't, like you can't bend it. Well, okay. Maybe you can bend it, but you can't break it. Like you can't get rid of it. It's just, it'll be there. You can move it around. You can, you can deploy some solution that pushes it to the edges of your solution, but there's still the edges. And like we live in an open world that's seemingly very complex. There will always be an open boundary that we are dealing with. And so in that sense, there's always a maybe. And the question is now, okay, yeah, maybe there is some like radical cryptographic construction. I think the more, uh, let's say exotic ones I've heard are, are based on cryptography. That's like very far away from being production ready. Um, yeah, there's things like homomorphic encryption, like witness obfuscation and, and mm -hmm. techniques like way beyond my understanding that like, you know, I've, I've heard people throw these terms around. Um, yeah, so so we'll see. I mean, definitely like if there is, you know, I expect there to be ongoing progress in cryptography broadly and very much many of those techniques will be applicable to the systems we're talking about today. I just add one thing to, to Alex's uh, stuff, which is. Basically, this sort of idea that there's no way of, of removing MEV, I feel like somehow, even though we're in 2022, it's still controversial because people are still always trying to do it. And then, you know, when they do it, they don't realize they introduce some like centralized cudgel, like, you know, in a lot of the fair ordering things, they kind of implicitly assume some sort of fallback oracle, fallback ordering person who is like effectively centralized. And I think one important thing is that, you know, we still haven't actually figured out how to correctly define what, A, the concept of MEV is, other than in particular subcases, and B, what the laws of transference are. Like, given two different mechanisms for uh, people to reveal their MEV, maybe one is, you know, right now, right, we have an auction, and so people bid on their bundles. 
But you could imagine a world where it's a totally different type of thing. And there's some calculation that tells you like, you submit a bundle and then it waits for, you know, K different bundles. And then the algorithm says like, okay, here's K prices. You can either buy it now, like eBay or not buy it, um, which is a very different version than kind of like, hey, we have an auction where you have to compete to reveal your prices. And the question is, we don't even have the basic lingua franca mathematically to compare what's the difference between me giving you prices versus you bidding in an auction for these types of things. And until you have that, you can't even really say like, hey, we're doing any reduction because we haven't proven that the mechanism, changing mechanisms has any economic impact. We kind of are like, oh, this thing is just harder because you can't see the bundle right here at this point. But that doesn't mean that there's not side channel information implicitly leaked from that at all. And until we actually have some way of comparing mechanisms, I generally think any claim that you have a clear reduction mechanism should be assumed to be false because it kind of assumes that the entire system is exactly the same. Like uh, a mutatus, muta I, I don't know my Latin well enough to, <laughs> to remember the, the exact phrase, like mut mutatus mutandi or something, whatever, like stayed in the same place. And so, so, so at some level, I think that's something you should always kind of keep in mind when evaluating these things is like, Sure, maybe the threshold encryption does actually work on a single block before, but the fact that you are still using an auction means that you've created some other inefficiency mm. and maybe the posting prices thing is more efficient for threshold encryption versus an auction. Those types of basic things aren't even known. I think like that these are the types of things I'd say it's like a quite large complicated system. It's and it's very hard to just like switch one box with another and be like, "Ah, we solved it." Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I now want to move on to the topic kind of of the day. The last few weeks, there's been, you know, something kind of crazy happened in the ZK space. OFAC, an organization that I was not really aware of before this day, has sanctioned a smart contract or collection of smart contracts in the form of Tornado Cash. Tornado being a mixer on Ethereum based on zero-knowledge proofs. Um, this came out while I was at ZCon uh, in the middle of a bunch of ZK researchers. So that was a good moment for that to happen. But I think like personally, I've been digesting it over the last few weeks, trying to like take in what people are saying, but also kind of hold steady until I can find out a little more. Or we know a little bit more, but I know that it hit you guys. So like the MEV question and like what addresses are potentially blacklisted came up in your conversation. So maybe you can share a little bit about what happened and how you've reacted, I guess, to this. So uh, the Flashbots infrastructure, we have been complying with OFAC for one and a half years now, already initially, because we do have public uh, unknown teammates living in the US and Flashbots has a US company. And it would introduce huge liabilities to the team members to not be compliant. So this is not for us now a place to walk back from OFAC compliance because the mm. implications are severe. If you're talking about 20 years jail time, this is uh, not something that we can, a risk we can put on team members. And yeah. we can also not walk easily back. What does it mean to follow OFAC guidelines though? Like what does that actually mean literally yes it's kind of hard because there is no clear guidelines but 
at the very least, there's a certain set of addresses where you cannot facilitate transactions. Mm. This is my understanding. This is uh, some legal opinions we have received. Um, there is, I think, some unclarity how deep it goes, how deep you have to inspect transactions and what you can okay. do, what you cannot do. So like OFAC has sanctioned the contracts, but in your case, did the Flashbots team take that to mean any address that has ever interacted with the Flashbots contract would be on that blacklist? No, that's not okay. the case. What the Flashbots projects did was um, most of our projects are open source and we added a pull request to add more addresses to the OFAC blacklist in the public repositories. That was already there. Yes, and, and this was in particular on the RPC endpoint. And the community raised a counter pull request to remove all of the OFAC censoring in this repository and mm -hmm. bringing a lot of visibility into OFAC censoring in general and then mixing this a little bit up with how MathBoost is censoring uh, automatically and by default and starting a broader debate with uh, conflating certain projects but still talking about now the merges in one month what does OFAC compliance mean for like Ethereum in that time span. Yeah. How are the addresses that were like added? How are they actually decided on? Because you, so you said it's not every address that ever interacted with the contract. So what is it? Like, where would that selection come from? I think that's just the addresses that the OFAC puts out. I'm not sure. Okay. I, to me, it's now I'm on the first day after two weeks of vacations and oh. I have <laughs> been, I have been following the discussions around, but uh, I don't have the detailed knowledge where the specific number of addresses is coming from? At least I can provide my understanding, which is that uh, there's a particular list put out by the Treasury with OFAC. Um, there's some acronym SDN, but essentially this is what you referred to when they quote sanctioned a smart contract is they added the address of this thing onto this list. And uh, to my knowledge, again, I, I don't know the details, but what I believe is that Flashbots has just taken this list and just dropped it in as sort of like, uh, what we will not do is allow any transactions into our products that, uh, you know, interact with anything on this list. Hmm. And again, to my knowledge, this doesn't mean anything that's interacted with those addresses, right? It's not this like yeah. transitive thing. Um, okay. I guess that is the question though. That's where it becomes like how far away would that potentially expand? The moment a government can define a transitive closure is the moment that I will say the education system actually worked for once. <laughs> Why? Because, <laughs> like, have you ever read any of these types of sanction documents no. on crypto stuff? Like, the actual legal language, the way people define things suggests to me that they sometimes conflate a public key with a physical address. And if you're already at that level of education, I, the idea that there's a transitive closure over the graph of all interactions of these addresses with each other seems like a big stretch for, you know, little old lawyer in, who works at, you know, the Treasury Department. But we don't know. Until, you know, this has come to some sort of legal situation, we don't know. And that's why everyone is concerned. And that's why there's been a lot of let's say drama over the last couple of weeks is because uh, mm. then, yeah, like you do have to say, okay, um, let's say we have, you know, people we care about, like we have teammates who are in these jurisdictions, then like suddenly like we're going to comply. Like, I don't, I don't think it's that controversial to say like, we're going to like, you know, avoid legal risk where possible. And then 
the question is, yeah, how, where does it end? Like, what's the extent of, of this stuff? And I think that's where it's just not clear yet, um, simply because there either hasn't been information or, you know, in some cases we won't know until there's mm-hmm. like regulations actually formed and that could take many years, right? So I do think if there anyone proposes something that's transitive in any sense, like there will be lots of lawsuits because mm-hmm. that that will be the thing that causes, you know, the like trial that goes to the Supreme Court because people will be like, how many hops is too many hops? Yeah. And like, it's it's, it's so just crazy. like, you know, there's no way that doesn't end in just like legal warfare. Yeah. I did notice a, like a lot of the feedback against it did come from folks that also don't live in the States. I mean, I, I basically saw the the counter to the pull request and some of the conversation in there. I mean, there were some people who were really talking about like throwing it up in the air, you know, like we will not touch this if this continues. You had a solution as far as I understood, which is like releasing some sort of open source version or what was that exactly? So the concern was that at the merge, there might be only the flashbots really serving blocks and the flashbots really not including transactions that fall under the OFAC sanction list. And that could mean that, uh, assuming 80% of proposers use uh, the flashbots relay, that 80% of the network will uh, have uh, blocks with uh, some sanctions. Um, to put it in perspective, though, Ethereum is surprisingly resilient in that way, because even if 80% of the network uses a sensor ring relay, then a sensor transaction still gets in, on average, every five blocks or after five blocks. If there's 95% of the network using relays that comply with OFAC, it's one in 20 blocks. Our response to this crisis was that we released the relay source code that we are running on our testnet since some time and developing. The plan was to do that all along, but uh, this accelerated the timeline. It's not mm-hmm. not in a final state. We wanted to get it a little bit more final, but it's an important conversation and discussion and discourse and we believe that multiple relays is a step in the right direction and to facilitate that direction um, we provide a i would say a solid and somewhat tested base code for other groups to start relays on their own and and to create more diversity and more competition i think obviously this topic is so much bigger than what we can get to in in this episode we don't have that much time left in the episode anyways so just to note for the listener, I will be doing an episode focused on Tornado and, and what's happened since then for the ZK space. So you can look out for that. Um, like always, I don't tend to do news on the show, so I don't try to like jump right away to catch something. I'd rather wait and see, kind of be able to gather quite a bit of info, figure out who I want to talk to, and then we'll do an episode like that. So yeah, no stress. Alex, Chris, I realize like, you know, I don't want to put too much on on the two of you to like answer it all today. Yeah. So I guess like, you know, we went from sort of people spamming the blockchain in 2019 with PGAs and probabilistic gas auctions to kind of the orderly but off-chain sort of solutions of MEV that sort of really rose in 2020, 2021. And now we're kind of moving to this uh, new world where most clients can be much more aware of MEV. And so I guess the real question is, you know, where do you see the next year or two and what are the kind of the innovations in both MEV on the engineering side as well as on the sort of research side that you're most excited about or think will kind of like come to fruition? Um, Maybe let's start with Chris. 
I think like in general, getting the infrastructure into a more stable state, getting additional capabilities into the beacon nodes perhaps for additional safety mechanisms, moving more towards a peer-to-peer network and gossiping, um, moving more towards a more trustless setup. It's like vague high-level goals that work is going and progressing towards. There's also a lot of ongoing research on PBS, on single slot finality, but this is all on a multi-year horizon. So in the short term, it's more the hardening, uh, additional security guarantees, and the development of the honest relays that provide neutral infrastructure to connect proposers and uh, block builders and users and searchers for me. What about you, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was a, a nice summary that Chris gave. So basically, you know, this MevBoost represents a version of PBS and we generally want to build out this vision, right? So like we all have a shared sort of destination, which is some enshrined PBS. And how do we get there? Well, we'd like there to be like a very healthy competitive market of all these different roles. Uh, and, you know, with competition, we'd hope to sort of reduce the externalities of, of these games generally. So that's, I think, like... Uh, you know, sort of a sort of quote roadmap as to where we're heading and maybe take another framing on it. It's like, I would like to uh, have people think about this as layers, right? So, you know, modular blockchains is like this new hot thing. So the reason why is because we can say, okay, like how are we going to actually scale these systems? Well, it turns out if we like separate out their distinct functions into layers, we can specialize the layers and then hopefully have everything work better together. So I'd like to then say, okay, let's apply this thinking to like the MEV world. And I think what we'll see there is like similarly, there'll be these like, you know, different chunks of functionality that specialize and become their own, you know, rabbit holes in their own way. So, so something I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very excited and looking forward to is like research around uh, the layers of the stack closer to the user. Like we've, we've talked a lot in this episode about what's the protocol and how's the protocol relate to this and maybe for consensus and things like this. Uh, but we've almost, you know, we've talked very little about, about the user. Like we mentioned threshold cryptography, for example, and its applications. And the reason we went to that is because, you know, the MEV goes all the way up the stack to like the person mm-hmm. actually making the transaction. There is no MEV unless there's a transaction, right? And so the question then is like, okay, like, can we improve upon the status quo? Um, and yeah, certainly can. There's actually, I think, a lot you can do. Yeah, that's the whole episode in itself, but a lot of very exciting <laughs> research. Like, you know, so to give an example, you, you could imagine that, you know, if I'm a user and I give you this Dex trade and you backrun me, rather than the searcher taking all of the value of the, the backrun, they give me half or something like this, right? And then the question is, okay, like, can we generalize this? Can this go across all sorts of like DeFi applications, different types of MEV? Um, you know, can we generalize in the sense of like having everyone do this? And yeah, then then you just there's like this whole world I think that we'll see in like a year or two and be like, oh yeah, like our thinking around this was like so sort of uh, early, and and now there's this like really interesting complex uh, landscape out there. New thing, cool. Well, I want to say thanks, Chris and Alex, for coming on the show and sharing with us kind of an update on MEV, what's new, what you're thinking about. Um, I do have one last thing, which is like I think this episode will air pre-merge. What's your outlook? What are you going to be doing? What are you going to be thinking about? What are you going to be waiting for? Yeah, this has been a long time coming. Uh, <laughs> I'm very excited. I think at this point, I'm you know, cautiously optimistic that things will go very well. 
it's something that we've generally been waiting for as a community for like quite a while. Right. So it's, it's definitely a huge milestone and, uh, yeah, it, it's almost this thing where it's like, I have some trouble seeing past it cause it's just like such a big thing that is about to happen. Um, but yeah, very, very exciting time. And yeah, uh, you know, as we've laid out, there's, there's a ton of more interesting, you know, uh, questions in the MEV space. So it's not that there won't be a lack of things to do. Nice. Yeah, I would second that. It's not like we are now resting and relaxing and waiting for the merge, but it's uh, like still an <laughs> ongoing big push on all fronts, on multiple teams, including research, including the client teams and all the yeah. implementers, builders, relays. So until the merge, it's uh, going to be an intense period and hopefully then a little bit of breathing room and then start the journeys to the next goals. Wild. Current date for the merge is September 15th, which is, by the way, also the date of the ZK Summit 8. Um, so it would be really cool if it happens on the same day, I feel. I want to say thanks again to both of you. Thanks, Tarun, for coming back. Thanks for having me. You know, it's been a while, but uh, good to come back for a, a topic I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Chris? Yeah, thank you, Anna. This has been great. Yeah, thanks. Great uh, talking with you all. I want to say a big thank you to the ZK podcast team. That's Tanya, Rachel, Henrik, and David as our guest editor this time. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks.